Our scripture reading today is taken from James 1, verse 1 to 12. Let us all read in a count of three. One, two, three. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in all his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. Let me start with a question, okay? Please participate. How many of you like tests? What I mean is, you're the kind of person who just loves exam. Anyone? Okay. I know that some of you, you're lying right now, okay? Because I know, I talked to some of you about this. Some of you, yeah, I just love exams. I'm like, that's weird. But that's okay. Jesus loves you. But it's safe to say that most of us don't like tests. We don't like trials. But it's the thing about trials. Whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, they're always coming for us. I've heard it said this way, we are either just coming out of trials, in the midst of trials, or heading toward trials. Which means that trials are unavoidable. From our childhood to our retirement, what is constant is trials are never over. Like, just talk about us right now, okay? Let's just talk about the circle of Rock Sydney Church. Right now, I know many of us are facing heavy trials. Some of you long to have marriage partner, but you're still single. Some are married, but marriage doesn't work as expected. Some have desire for children, but it doesn't happen. Others have children, and yet their children have physical or mental weaknesses. Others have relationship with your children or your parents that is marked with pain and heartache. And some of you recently lost your parents. Some of you have been struggling with sickness for years. Some are struggling with mental health and emotional challenges. Some of you just recently received that two weeks notice. And on top of that trial, there are trials that come specifically because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what happened. You pray for miracles. You believe that God can deliver you out of your trials and you see God does it in other people's life, right? 
But for whatever reason, your trials continue and they only seem to worsen. You guys know what I'm talking about? The point is, none of us is here is free from trials. So the question is, how then do we face trials in life? So today, we're beginning a new series on the book of James, okay? And why James? Let me tell you why I choose the book of James. The reason we're doing the book of James is because it is the perfect follow-up to our series on Galatians. See, in Galatians, we learned that we are saved by faith alone. That's it. No addition. The moment we try to add anything to Jesus' perfect work, in fact, we ruin it. We destroy it. We lose the gospel. So our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that means faith is extremely essential to our faith, to our Christian walk. But the question is, here's the question that I want you to consider, then how do we know that our faith is genuine? And that's what the book of James will answer for us. How do we know if our faith is actually authentic and not artificial? And here's what the book of James will teach us. The book of James is going to make clear that we can think that we have true saving faith in Christ when we don't. So the book of James is unique because James, this is what James does. James takes the gospel and he asks this question. Okay, I know you believe the gospel, but in light of the gospel, how then shall you live? And that is why you will not find explanation of what the gospel is because James assumes you understand the gospel. But then what James will ask is, is your life actually in, is consistent with what you believe or not? And that is why the book of James is filled with to-do lists, okay? If you are a type A personality, you will love the book of James. It is extremely practical because James is giving us step, how do we live in the kingdom of God, okay? And the theme for the year for our church is kingdom influence. How can we lift out our influence in our daily life? And the book of James gives you the answer. It's a very down-to-earth book, and he's very clear. James is like this. You know how a lot of time when Paul and Peter, they talk in, you know, very logical, very argumentative, and you have to think? The book of James requires you, not really, but you don't really have to think. Because the book of James tells you, do this, don't do this, listen to this, don't listen to that, go do this. Go here and don't go there. It's very practical. I don't think you can read the book of James and wonder like, you know, I'm not sure what, the, what James is saying. Okay, it's very clear. But let's look at the context first. James 1, verse 1. James says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion, great. Pop quiz time. Who wrote the book of James? Okay. I hope you don't say Peter or Paul, okay? Otherwise, I resign right now, bro. But this James is not one of the 12 apostles. This James is actually the half-brother of Jesus, and that's amazing. Because if you ever doubt the authenticity of Christian faith, all you have to do, look at James' life. Think about it. What does it take for your older brother to convince you that he's the son of God? Because if anyone is going to see your sin, it's your little brother. Because you treat your little brother as dirt. Like your little brother sees all your inconsistency, right? He sees all your heartlessness. He sees your ego and pride. Am I right, every little brother, aka every Jeremy in this place? <laughs> but here we see James called Jesus what? Lord. 
And James, he wasn't always a believer because we're told while Jesus was alive, James actually thought Jesus was crazy. He did not believe in Jesus. He made fun of Jesus. But now he said in his letter, you know what? I take it back. My half brother, he's not crazy. He's God. I'm all in. Now what happened? What card did Jesus play? Here's what can convince you. Here's what can convince your younger brother that you're God. You ready? You predict your death. You die. You stay dead for three days. Come back alive and eat nuggets with them. That will convince your older, younger brother that you're God. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It changed James from thinking that Jesus was a moron to Jesus is Lord. And then James, he eventually became one of the lead pastors of church in Jerusalem. And I love the way that James introduced himself, right? I mean, if I was James, if I was James, I would probably say, hi, I'm James, <clears throat> the younger brother of Jesus, right? Anyone will play that card? I would. That would be my introduction anytime, anywhere. But James didn't do that. He did not boast in the half-brother badge. Rather, he called himself James, the servant of Jesus. Because for James, it is far more significant to be known as the servant of Jesus than the younger brother of Jesus. I mean, praise God for the biological connection James had with Jesus, but it cannot be compared with the spiritual connection he enjoyed with Jesus. And he wrote this letter in 40 AD, which make it the earliest piece of Christian writing in New Testament. And it is directed to Christian Jews who were scattered to different places because of persecution. Okay, that's James' main audience. So this, is, this letter is by a pastor writing to his congregation who are dispersed because of persecution. But this letter, I believe, is also for all Christians dispersed throughout the world. And he begins his letter by talking about the one thing, the one common thing that every Christian experiences in life. What that is? Trials. Okay? Let's look at it together. How do we face trials in life? There are three things that we can see in the text. Have God's perspective, trust in God's wisdom, look to God's reward. I mean, from my point already, you can tell, like, this is very applicative, right? Very different from the usual you'll see. I'm just following James. He's very applicative. Let's look at the first one. Have God's perspective, verse 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produced steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now notice, James does not say, if you meet trials, right? What did he say? When you meet trials. It means no one is exempted from trial. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how holy you are. Trials are coming for you. I mean, you can wake up every single morning at 4 a.m., pray to God, and memorize a chapter each day of the Bible. Trials are still coming for you. And trials can come anytime, anywhere, without invitation. Like, I wish, I wish trials have the courtesy to call us in advance and let us know they're coming. That'd be fun. Hey, Yos, I'll be heading your way next week, and I'm going to stick around for the next three weeks. Be ready. That'd be great, right? Because I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to run away to Hawaii or something. But they don't. And you experience this. I know you do. All it takes is a single phone call to turn a wonderful day into a nightmare. 
And James said, Count it joy, count it all joy, my brothers. To which we go, hold on a second, James. What do you mean? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, count it all joy. I mean, don't you know the pain that I'm going through, James? Don't you know how hard it is for me just to get up another morning and live another day? I mean, don't you see what I posted in Instagram last night? A bucket of tears, James. What do you mean by counted all joy? Because joy is not what we typically feel in trials, right? Do you know what we typically feel in trials? Anger. Especially if we feel that the trials are unjust. Like, God, what did I do to deserve this pain? Why me? Why not other people? Why not him or her? I'm, I'm actually a good Christian. This is unfair. Uh, the other natural response is despair. How long? How long, God, do I have to endure this? How long? I've, how long do I have to wait till finally things change? Will the pain ever go away? See, anger and despair feel natural to us in pain. Joy is the last thing we associate with in our trials. But listen carefully to what James says. He doesn't say this, hey guys, trials are fun. Okay, enjoy it. Have the best time of your life. He doesn't. He also doesn't say, guys, you just gonna have to suck it up for now, right? You cannot feel joy until your trials over. He doesn't say that. He says what? Counted all joy. And the word count actually means we are supposed to look at what trials can get us. So James here not telling us so much how to feel, but how to think. He's saying this, if you think clearly, if you do the math properly, if you know the reason behind your trials, then you can find joy in your trials. How? Because trials are not random. God is the one who planned all the trials that we experience. God is the one who is in charge. And God has a purpose for every trial that He allowed in our life. And listen carefully. God is not a passive observer. You know what I mean by that? So God does not look at our trials, crush His head in heaven and say, you know what? Oh my gosh. I wonder what I should do with the trial that my people are experiencing right now. Gabriel, Michael, can you give me some advice here? He doesn't. God does not drive an ambulance. You know what I mean by that? See, an ambulance comes to the scene after an accident happened and goes, gosh, what happened to you, mate? Let me help you. Let me, let me fix you. Let me do what, what I can to fix you. But God does not work that way. That's not the way God operates. Because God does not show up on the scene trying to repair what was broken. He knows exactly what is happening in all places at all times. He never show up late. So the first thing that we must have in trial is we need to have God's perspective. We need to see the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? Is this. Trials reveal to us whether our faith in God is genuine or not. God is using trials to test and refine our faith. Because it is very easy, brothers and sisters, it is very easy for us to say, I have faith in God when life works out as we plan. But we know this. It's not good times that prove whether our faith is genuine or not. It's not season where everything goes according to our expectation that show whether we truly got trust in God or not. 
it is when nothing goes according to our expectation that proves whether we truly have faith in God or not. It is trial that reveals who we truly are. So if life goes wrong and we are mad at God and we say, God, how could you let this happen to me? I don't, don't deserve this. And then we walk away from faith. It only tells us that our faith in God is never genuine in the first place. See, trial reveal that to us. Trials respond, I mean, trials reveal what is really happening in our heart. Do we love God for God or do we love God for what God can give us? Because if we really love God for God, then we can find joy in trials because we know that God is using trials to test and refine our faith. I love how Douglas Moo put it. He said, put it this way. The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, hitting it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. Now, you know this. Isn't that true? that our sweetest experience of Jesus happens in our most agonizing trials. Isn't that true? Why? Because through that trials, God gets rid of impurities in our faith. Trials burns away our self-defendence and drive us to Jesus. And not only that, but then James said that trial produced steadfastness, and steadfastness will lead us to become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, let me explain how it works. So the word steadfastness is from the Greek word hypomone. Can you repeat that word for me? Hypomone. Okay, and that is an important word in the book of James. Okay, we will come back to it again and again. The word means this, unmovable. So before the song, A Man Who Can't Be Moved, is written, James already predicted that. Christian is a man who can't be moved. Christian is a man, a person who will not budge no matter what happened. And, that, and then what trial does, trial actually produced the endurance that steadfastness is enough. And that steadfastness led us to become perfect and complete, which means we become mature in Christ. And isn't that the ultimate goal of Christian life? We want to become mature in Christ. But it's the question. Do you know how we get there? Like we like to believe, right? I know. We like to believe that we can become spiritually mature by what? Reading a lot of Tim Keller's book, listening to a lot of gospel-centered podcasts, watching Instagram reels every day on the toilet seat and send it to our friends. But we can't. Do you know how we become mature? It's only one way. Trials. Now, if you're younger, 15, 16, you might not trust me. But if you ask people who are closer to my age, they will agree with me. Isn't it true that difficulties in life equip us to be better people? Better husband, better wife, better man, better woman? See, trials equip us to understand ourselves better and therefore make better decisions because trials enable us to finally see our own limitation and we know how to deal with our hearts better so that now we can help other people because of that. See, trials equip us to do everything much better. It can to both charge the ordinary process of Christian growth. Like the best example for this, I think, is Apostle Paul. Now, if you read his letter, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 12, at the end of his letter, Paul tells us something very interesting, okay? He talked about himself and he mentioned this. 
he had this thing called torn in the flesh. Have you heard that term before? Okay, we, we don't know what it was, basically. Uh, a lot of scholars can speculate, I can speculate, but I don't know because he didn't tell us. But it was something quite bad in his life that he asked God to remove. So he says this, God, I had this trial that really pained me in the butt, and God, would you take it away from me? I pleaded to you three times, God, please take it away. You know what God say? Uh-uh, Paul, I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm not going to remove it from your life because I want to show you my grace is sufficient to the trial that you experience. And you know what Paul did? He was okay with that. Paul was okay with that. Do you know why? Like I can argue with you that Paul is probably the most brilliant person ever lived beside Jesus. Jesus founded the church, but it was Paul who made the teaching of Jesus Christ clear to all Christians. So Paul is extremely gifted, and he says in this passage, the reason why God gave me the thorn in the flesh, the reason why God allowed me to live in this trial and did not take it away, it was so that I stay grounded. Because if it's not for this trial, I will be very prideful. I will rely on my intellect, and I will not know what it means to trust in God's sufficient grace. It is through this trial that I can continue to preach the gospel and be a blessing to millions of people. Because I will have never been good, never be, well, I will have been no good to anyone without it. Here's the something that we learn through trials. There is no humility without trials. Because here's the thing about trials, right? Trials make you finally awaken to the fact that you are not sufficient, that you are actually weaker than you think, and that's what leads you to depend on God. Trial help us realize how much we need God, and that's what make us spiritually mature. Keller put it this way. Affliction is how we move from abstract knowledge of God to a personal counter with Him. Trials is often how we move from knowing about God to knowing God personally. Now, can you start to see why now that James tells us to count out all joy when we face trials? See, James is not telling us to put that fake smile on our face and pretend, how are you, brother? God is good all the time. God is good. That's not what he saying. There are times for tears. There are times for grieving. See, we're not joyful because trials are good times, but we are joyful because we know what trials would produce, will produce. It's like a pregnant woman. A pregnant woman knows she faces nausea and painful childbirth. But she rejoices because she looks past the pain of the process and sees the end, the birth of her child. So it is with our trials. We rejoice because no trial, no sorrow, no struggle, it's outside of God's plan. God is using every trial to make us grow in Christ-likeness. I wish there's shortcut to Christ-likeness, but there isn't. The path to Christ-likeness, the path to spiritual maturity is extremely difficult. So if you believe that following Jesus will give us a better life, give up that idea. 
If we think trusting Jesus will equal fewer trials, you've been lied to. Because trusting Jesus will lead us to various trials. But if we understand what James is saying, then this changes the way we face trials, isn't it? Like most of the time, when we face trials, our goal is what? Let me just get through it as soon as possible. Our goal is to fix the circumstances to get things to where we want it to be and to get what we want. And if that is our goal in trials, we will not count that as joy. You know what we will feel? Endless frustration and worry. But when our goal is to grow in Christ-likeness, then it doesn't matter how dark the trials are. We know that our goal is going to be achieved because God is constantly working in our trials to make us mature and complete in Him. So friends, we cannot avoid trials, but we can choose how we respond to trials. What we need is God's perspective. And having God's perspective does not change our circumstances, but it does change us, allowing us to face our circumstances for the glory of God. So now we can count it all joy when we face trials because we know the good and sovereign God is at work in our trials, making us more like Christ. Okay, some of you are like, okay, that's cool. All I need is God's perspective in trials. But here's the thing. God's perspective in trials does not come automatically. We need wisdom, which leads me to my second point. Trust in God's wisdom. Verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who give generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So James says here, the second thing that you need to face trial is to trust in God's wisdom. Do you know why? Because a lot of time, we do not know what God knows, right? We cannot see what God sees, especially during trials. Trials can easily make us feel disoriented. We often feel like our trials are meaningless and purposeless, and because of that, we feel lost. We don't know what to do. You know what's trials' best friend? Confusion. They go together. And that is why James said we need to ask God for wisdom, and we need to trust His wisdom, because what we need to face trial is wisdom. And James is not talking about generic wisdom. He's talking about specific wisdom in facing trials. So in this context, wisdom is talking about the ability to see trials the way God sees them and make decisions accordingly. Why do we need this wisdom? Because what makes trials hard, what makes trials extremely hard is not the trials themselves, but what we tell ourselves about the trials. It's how we interpret the trials. Okay, let me give you one example. Let's say this is a motel room. Okay, let's call it the room, room number 888. So there's this couple on their honeymoon, and you say, hey, how would you like to stay in this room? They walk in, they look around, and they say, you know what? This room is extremely horrible. Give me a better room. And then a few minutes later, there's a man who has been convicted of crime and sentenced to prison, and you bring that man to the room, same room, room 888, and say, hey, how would you like to stay in this room? He look around and say, this is awesome. Thank you. 
So there was a couple who looked at the room and said, this is awful, I deserve better. Someone else walked into the same room and said, this is wonderful, thank you. Why? They interpreted differently. They receive it from different perspective. They had different expectation of what they deserve. And James is telling us here, the reason that why we can't bear with our trial is because we do not have the wisdom to receive it. And that is why we need to ask God for wisdom. And the first principle of wisdom in the Bible is to know we ain't have wisdom. Okay, remember this? We talked about this in our shares last month, right? The way we know someone is a fool is a fool thing. He is wise in his own eye. The way we know someone, we know someone is wise is a wise person thing. He is not wise. So if we don't think that we are fool, we are fool. And the main thing that crushes us when we face trial is if we think we know exactly how life works best when we are in charge. In other words, when trial comes, if we say, I know how my life should be and this is not it and I deserve better, we will be crushed. But the mark of wisdom is to know I ain't get it wrong. I ain't was. To know that we don't know what's best and to know that God is infinitely wiser than us. So in trials, we say this, God, I don't know very much. I know very little. I don't know why you allow this to have to happen to me, but I know that you know. I know that you know all things. So God, help me to see what you see. Help me to know what you know. Help me to see from your perspective. And that's, my friend, is the mark of wisdom. Because trials are supposed to make us feel that we are not able so that we may learn to trust in God's wisdom and ask God for it. And here's what's beautiful. When we do that, here's what James say. God will give wisdom generously to all without reproach. So when we come to God and ask Him for wisdom, you know, God is not going to say, all right, fine, you know what? I'm going to give it to you, but you should have listened to me in the first place. No. No shame. No condemnation. No disapproval when God gives us wisdom. There's no, chick, chick, chick. I told you. No, no, no. He gladly gives wisdom generously. No one has to be afraid. No one has to be ashamed. No one has to feel embarrassed to ask God for wisdom. All James is telling us is just, just ask God, and God, the one with infinite wisdom, will give us the wisdom we need. Okay? And when I read and I study for this passage, a lot of commentaries says this. This is the only promise in the Bible where God say, if we ask, we are guaranteed to receive without fail. What is it? Ask God for wisdom in trials. So when we are facing trials and we feel lost and we don't know what to do next, God says, come, ask me, and I will help you see. I'll tell you what you need to know. I'll lead you every step of the way. I am not stingy with my wisdom. I will give wisdom generously to all who ask. But there's condition. There's one condition in receiving what God's wisdom. Only one. 
And I come in verse 6 to 8. It says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his way. So James is telling us, when we ask God for wisdom, we must not doubt that He will give it to us, okay? And be careful. James is not telling us this. That means if you doubt, all you need to do is sing, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe in you, I believe, I believe. And somehow, force yourself to that state, you finally come to absolute belief that you believe in God's wisdom. That's not what he's saying. The word doubt and the word double-minded come from the same Greek word, and repeat it after me, it's called decycle. Decycle, okay? Another important word that James will use throughout the book, which means it's this, okay? The word decycle means this, a person of two minds. A person with divided loyalty, okay? So it means this, when we ask God for wisdom, we are not sure whether we actually want it or not. So we are of two minds. One day we ask wisdom from God. The next day we rely on our own wisdom. So we ask God for wisdom, but then we refuse to trust in God's way. And that's what James is talking about. So this is not about intellectual doubt. It's about wholehearted devotion to God. Okay, let me put it this way. We need to trust God not only as the composer of our life, but also as the conductor of our life. Do you know the difference between composer and conductor in orchestra? A composer is the one obsessed with creation, while conductor is the one obsessed with performance, right? A composer creates or conductor performs. And a conductor makes a big difference in how, how the orchestra does. Because here's the thing, you can have the same instrument, same musician, same place, same skill, same symphony, but different in sound because the conductor changes. The conductor set the pace, tone, the timing of everything in the symphony. So if the conductor ain't good, you know what you get? A bad orchestra. But if the conductor is very good, you have heavenly orchestra. Here's my point. We know God is the composer of our life. We know He's the author of our life. The question is, who is the conductor of our life? Because that makes all the difference. Because you and I, we must have a conductor. We must have someone who do this in our life. Okay, this is not, this is my iPad pencil, but it works. We have we have to have someone who said, okay, play this, play that, play that instrument, play that sound. We have someone who directs our life. The question that James is asking, who is that conductor that conducts everything in your life? You only have two choices, whether it's God or you. See, our role in orchestra is to trust the conductor, trust that the conductor knows what he's doing, even though we don't. And a lot of them in life, it doesn't make any sense. But a good conductor knows how to take different instruments, different sounds, different melodies, 
and turns them into something majestic. Here's my point. If we want God's wisdom in our trial, we must trust Him both as the composer and the conductor of our life. We must put all our confidence in Him and do things His way. So we can't be in two boats, brothers and sisters. You know what I mean by that? We can't be one foot in God's boat and other foot in me boat. Because if we do that, James said, we are unstable and we will not receive anything from God. See, the reason why don't, you don't have that peace, inner restfulness, because you still think that it's up to you to make it happen. So on Sunday, you pray to God to fix your problem. On Monday, you take matters into your own hand. On Sunday, you pray to God, God, give me your wisdom for my marriage. On Monday, you try to manipulate your spouse to get what you want. On Sunday, you say, God, give me wisdom for my finances. On Monday, you cheat on your taxes. See what happened? We are asking God for wisdom, but we are not trusting Him to conduct our life. And here's what James said. The question is not whether God will give you wisdom or not. That's guaranteed. When you ask God, He will give you wisdom in your trial. The question is, will you trust in God's wisdom? Will you trust His way? Because if you trust Him for wisdom, but you refuse to walk in His way, you are doubting God. You are double-minded. And James said, you will not receive anything from God. With God, it's all in or nothing. Now, it doesn't mean then, doesn't mean that if we trust God in our trials, then we do nothing. Let go, I mean, trust God, let go and let God. Is that the way we work? I don't think so. Trusting God's wisdom is not passive. It's active. But we are active in such a way that we are dependent of God, on God. You know what I mean by that? So that means we do everything we can, but we refuse to step outside of God's boundary. We refuse to step outside of God's word in facing our trial. So we do everything we can and we leave the outcome to God. We ask God for wisdom, we obey His word and we submit to His will. In other words, if we were praying before, keep praying. If we were reading the Bible before, keep reading the Bible. If we were serving before, keep serving. If we were obeying God before, keep obeying. If we were going to MC before, keep going to MC. Continue to do what is right and ask God for wisdom. Trust Him one step at a time, one decision at a time. Stay put. And James said, wisdom will come to you. And we will find that we get humbler, we get kinder, we get more faithful. And in due time, we realize we become more like Christ. And that, my friend, is the wisdom that we need to face trials. And the third thing that we need is look to God's reward. Verse 9 to verse 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Okay? Here's what we know about trials. Trials have a leveling effect, don't they? 
And James saying to the lowly or the poor, he says this, when you face trial, I know it's easy to think that you will do better if you have more resources. I know you wish that you have more money to deal with the issue in front of you, but don't do that. But rather, remember how rich you are in Christ. Remember how high Christ exalted you. You are the child of the King of the universe. Boast in your exaltation and trust in Christ. And to the rich, James is saying, when you face trial, remember the depth which Christ has rescued you from. Because your riches cannot save you. Your wealth will perish. And if you continue to pursue riches, you also will perish. But you don't know that. You don't realize that because riches and wealth make you feel like you're powerful. But trials bring you down and show you how helpless you are. It reveals that you are utterly bankrupt spiritually. It humiliates you so that Christ can save you. So boast in your humiliation and trust in Christ. How can they do that? There's only one way. Wisdom. Only God's wisdom can make the poor boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Only God's wisdom can make them see their situation from God's perspective. And look at what happened next, verse 12. Last verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So here's the promise. Perseverance in trial not only produces maturity in us, it also brings the crown of life, eternal reward. Now, when you hear the word crown, I don't want you to picture Queen Elizabeth, okay? Don't picture the crown worn by her as well, because that's not what James is talking about, okay? The crown that James was talking about here is a wreath that was put on Atlas' head at the end of a race that he has won. That's the image here. There's someone who's running a hard race, getting to the end as a victor, and then given a crown as a reward. And a crown of life is promised for those who endure trials in life and love God. Okay? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. For everyone who loves God, we can rejoice in trial because we know what's coming at the end of our race. We know that trials will not have the last word over our life. We can rejoice in trials because we know that God is using trials to mature us and then He will reward us with the crown of life. But listen, knowing what's coming doesn't make trial less painful, but it does make trials bearable. Because we know that one day, because of our faith, because we stand fast, we stand fast with our faith, we're going to stand before God. And then that day, in that day, God is going to put that crown of life over our head. And then He's going to wipe away all our tears. And He's going to tell us this, Yossi, from this moment forward, there will be no more pain. All trials are over. 
All your pains are no more. There will be no more sleepless night, no more heartache, no more conflict, no more loneliness, no more broken dreams, no more deaths, no more sickness, no more fear. And all you have for the rest of your life for eternity is joy after joy after joy after joy. What you will experience from this moment forward is everlasting joy. And that promise is coming for everyone who remains steadfast. See, keeping our eyes on God's reward is what helps us to face trials in life. So what do we need to do to face trials in life? We need to have God's perspective. We need to trust in God's wisdom. And we need to look to God's reward. Here's my final thought, and I'm done. How? How can we be sure that trials will make us better. Because trials don't automatically make us better. It is very possible for trials to make us better. Trials can make us kinder or meaner. Trials can make us more selfless or more self-absorbed. We know there are many Christians who walk away from their faith because of trials. Painful, heartbreaking, agonizing trial. And they just say, I had enough. I'm leaving. So how can we be sure that in the midst of that pain, agonizing trial, that we will get better instead of bitter? It's only one way. We have to see Christ's steadfastness toward us. Let me put it this way. I love Iron Man, okay, in Avengers game, Endgame, okay? I've used this illustration a lot because I have yet to find a better one. Do you know why I love Avengers Endgame so much? Of course, all the actions are great. All the superheroes are great. You know, but you know one thing that makes me really, really love Avengers game, Endgame? Do you know what? There's one line that always catch me all the time. I love you, 3,000. Like I couldn't help but be moved whenever I saw Iron Man sacrifice his life for the sake of his loved one. Because he had a choice to make. He can choose to live or he can choose to enjoy the pain and die to save his loved one. And he chose I love you 3,000, and he died. And every time, without fail, that tears flow from my eyes. I mean, if you don't cry when you listen to that, you don't have heart. But let me tell you, I have a better example for you. Someone who remains steadfast under the greatest trial in the universe. The order of Hebrew says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him enjoyed the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See that word, oh, sorry. I actually forgot to, can you help me? That word injured there is the same Greek word, hypomone. 
that is translated as steadfastness in James, the exact same word. And the author of Hebrew tells us this, there's another hero, there's another character that remains steadfast in the greatest trial in the universe. All the weights of God's eternal justice for sin came upon his shoulder. All the punishment that we deserve for all the sins that we did was poured out on him. See, Jesus faced the cosmic trial and he remained steadfast. He stayed. He did not move. He could have. I mean, he had the authority of heaven on earth to walk away from the cross, but he did not. You know why? He enjoyed that painful cross to the end. Why? Because the author of the Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. You know what kind of joy? The joy of putting that crown of life upon our heads. The only way for us to have that crown of life is for God to forgive us and welcome us. But the only way for God to forgive us and welcome us is for Jesus to remain steadfast on that cross. For Jesus to say, I will not move. I will remain here no matter how painful it is. And that is the story of the gospel. And knowing the gospel is what enables us to remain steadfast in our trials and get better. So we, if we only say, okay, I have to remain steadfast. I have to remain steadfast in my trial so I get better. Let me tell you, that's not going to work. It's only a matter of time before you crumble. But if you see the man endure the cross for you, if you see how he remains steadfast at the cross for you, you can say, because he persevered for me, I can persevere in my trial. I know I ain't alone. I know Jesus is with me in my trials. I know he will never, ever let go of me. Why? Because he endured hell on that cross for me. He took what I deserve, so today I can have the promise and guarantee when I remain steadfast, I will receive the crown of life. The gospel assures us that Jesus is not only in control by fiery trials, but he's with us in our fiery trials. He absorbed the fire of God's judgment so that when you and I went through that fire, we're not burned, but we are refined. That what makes us better to trials. And let me end with this wonderful quote from Charles Spurgeon. You often think that Jesus does not care because he has not interposed with a great miracle. Gradually, you're getting poorer and becoming more afflicted in body. My dear friend, sometimes God works a greater wonder when he sustains people in trouble than by delivering them. To let the bush burn with fire and not be consumed is a greater thing than quenching the flame and saving the bush. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask right now, like I know, Lord, I know there's so many different trials that your people face in this room. And it is so easy, Lord, when we face trial, we begin to wonder. We begin to try on our own wisdom. We begin to make things work on our own strength. But forgive us, Lord. 
But I pray that tonight we are reminded, Lord, that in times of trial, we're not to try to make things work on our strength, but we are to come to you and ask you for wisdom. Ask you to help us in our trials. And the promise is that you will give us the wisdom that we need in our trials. So before we worship and take communion, I just want to give this challenge to you. How many of you say today, Lord, I need that wisdom. I'm in the middle of trial that I, I just, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I tried and I only make things worse. And I really, really need your wisdom. I'm tired of relying on my own strength. And today, Lord, I want to rely on your wisdom. I need that wisdom. If that's you, no matter what kind of trial that you're experiencing, but you humbly, you want to say, Lord, I humbly come to you and ask you for wisdom. If that's you, why don't you raise your hand? Why don't you just turn really high? It's between you and God. And let me pray for you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place who raise their hand. God, I don't have the answers to that question. No man does. But you do. So I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the trial that experiencing right now, whatever it is, no matter how painful it is, you tell us to come to you and ask for wisdom. And you promise you will give it to us. So here we are. We humbly come to you and we say, Lord, I'm tired of living life my own way. I need your wisdom. And I want to trust your wisdom. Give us that wisdom, Lord. And give us the heart to remain steadfast, to trust you. And trust you every step of the way. And you will lead us. And we will see every step of the way we become more and more mature. We become more and more like Christ. Thank you, Father. And we ask this prayer in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.